Holy and gracious God, we thank you that we might continue to gather around your table to hear a word from you. We pray that those words might transform us, not just in our spirit, but also in our actions, that we might live out your body and your presence in the world. We pray the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. Amen. In this series on the Lord's Prayer, one of the themes that we have throughout this is talking about how prayer is not just about talking to God. Prayer is about transforming us into something as well. So it's not just the words we give, it's the, how the words shape us and make us into something else. The, the phrase that uh, the author Adam Hamilton uses throughout the book, The Lord's Prayer, which we're following in some of our small groups, is ora et labora, which he didn't make up. It's a phrase that was used by St. Benedict uh, in the sixth century and to talk about how prayer is also something that we do at work. Like we put our prayers into work and to practice. And, and that's the theme of this series because Jesus teaches us one prayer to follow. And that's this prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And I think that he did it not just because it's a good words to say, but it should be how we choose to live our lives and covers so much of the heart of the gospels and the heart of the, uh, the Bible and God's people within it. We began by talking about how it's recognizing God as God, that God is our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And that God is kind of beyond us, and so we are a people in need of God and God's direction. And as we gather around the table, we're going to talk about the great thanksgiving, which is the phrase that we've used since the early church as we gather to celebrate this holy ritual called the Eucharist or Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper, whatever fancy word we want to give to it that we would gather around the table and we would remember the story of God's people. And unfortunately, that story is riddled with our, as in God's people's, attempt to place ourselves in a, a position that is not reliant on God. So we can choose our own way versus the way that God has. And, and that's the kind of the story throughout the Old Testament, if you want to choose a, a rhythm throughout it. And so Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer by redirecting that and by pointing us to God and saying, we are always reliant on God. And then he emphasizes that point even more to talk about we are reliant on God's kingdom to come here on earth. And last week we talked about the, the trappings of the church trying to make God's kingdom on earth. And all too often that kingdom ends up being the way that we want it and not the way that God desires it to be. And we try to say God's will is this, when God's will truly and always has been bringing us together and reconciling us. And so now we have a very simple one that should be just quite easy, right? A simple prayer in the middle of this Lord's Prayer. Give us our daily bread. Give us our daily bread. And I think for me, there's three components of this that's, kind of summarize the power of this. And I'll just summarize them real, real quick. One is the term us. The second is daily. And then the third is that Jesus is referencing both a physical need and a spiritual need as well. 
So let's go uh, off of the first or off of the first one, us. That essential to Jesus and his ministry is that it is not about, what was the phrase I talked about last week? If you're here, it is mine. It is mine. That the, the heart of the gospel is not about choosing what is best for me and taking it for myself, but instead it's about this communal thing this thing called us. You know, there's an easy phrase that anyone's played in any sport and has had a coach that's trying to get them to work together, right? There's no I in team. You know it, you know it, right? There's no I in team that we're in this together. And yet so often we try to kind of do it on our own. We try to go about things that we don't share our vulnerabilities if we're going through a hard thing. You know, uh, I talk about my experiences when I was living abroad in Japan, and, and one of the things that it was awkward for them is kind of like this phrase like, how are you today, right? Like trying to teach a foreign language about this phrase in American English, like, how are you doing, right? And what's our response to that always? You know, like, how are you doing? And, and then in Japanese, it's, I'm fine, thank you. <laughs> you know, that's what they teach the kids to say, I'm fine, thank you. But because that's what they see Americans doing, Right. And it went even deeper when I started to like pry into why they would take their pictures differently than we did. And then one of them noticed or like communicated to me and in the kind of like the hodgepodge between Japanese and English that we communicated in because neither of us were fluent in the other language was that they want to smile and like do these like crazy like things like this because they see Americans always happy in their pictures right? And so they want to be like that. And they, you know, like, but the older Japanese culture never smiled in the pictures, right? And they like, and as a part of American culture is that we got to be happy, right? And get ready for that picture. And we got to say, I'm fine, thank you, right? And so now we even get to the point where you'll, you'll all, we'll all just kind of like begin with this, how are you doing, right? And then if it's someone that you like actually care, right? Or you know them more than just the surface level, you would go something like, but how are you really doing? right? Does anyone ever say that? Like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Yeah. But how are you actually doing right now? And you have to like double emphasize the same question just to get past this, I'm fine. But the reality is, is that we are together in this and that we're together in this so much that we ought to consider other people around us and how they might not be doing well. Give us our daily bread. An emphasis that this life of the church is first and foremost about communing with one another and with God, gathering together. I, I read, since it's World Communion Sunday, I'm going to talk a little bit more about communion today. And I've referenced this here and there, but I'll kind of unpack it a little bit more. Is that in the early Christian church, the church was not persecuted like some people, you know, some different narratives of the early church. It wasn't like the Roman Empire was going around and taking Christians and just like, you know, putting them on the cross. So that wasn't what was happening. What was happening there is that there was a, this thing called the emperor cult at the time of the early church, which is to say that they, everyone kind of had to pay homage to what was written on every coin that they used for the Roman Empire was a stamp that said, Caesar is divine. 
And this is one of the ways that the Roman Empire would maintain its control in a unique way where you have like the Babylonians, right? They would send everyone off to exile so that they start having all of the practices match the Babylonian kingdom's practices. The Roman Empire kind of let everyone do their thing as long as like the overarching like kind of policies and procedures stayed in place. So, you know, people could be Jewish and people could be Christian and people could be whatever religion, Zoroastrianism, whatever that was abiding within the Roman Empire. They didn't care as long as sort of they were able to maintain the highest truth, which was that the one in power is the one in power, right? So even if you didn't believe it, they didn't care, but they wanted to make sure that you would practice it, right? So they wanted to make sure that you could kind of pay part of the societal tribute to the emperor. And so sometimes the way what would happen is that people, if they wanted to call someone out or get them in trouble or to get them persecuted, they would say something like, ah, oh, well, they're a Jew. Or, and Jews say that there's only one God, right? And that God is Yahweh. And so how do you practice emperor is divine. And, and similarly, Christians say there's only one God, right? And how do you practice emperor is divine? And so they would go to the Roman guards and they would say to them, hey, this person, they don't believe what's on the coin. And so they would take the Christian or the Jew or whoever out and they would go out to a fire and they would t give them some spices and say, all right, take some spices and throw it in the fire and say that emperor is divine. And if you do that, you're off the hook. You're clear and good to go. And of course, uh, one of the early Christian kind of challenges, right, was like, how do, we, like, how do you faithfully do that? I mean, if it's me, it's like, okay, I got this, right? I got my, got my fingers crossed, you know, take this, done. All right, we're good to go. You know, other people like this, no, we can't say that, right? We can't do that. No, that goes exactly against our faith. And then others still would find themselves like living kind of in the remote, desolate areas so as to never even be asked the question. So how do we respond? And so Christians were very kind of weary of any personal vendettas that others might carry with one another because, you know, you do something wrong to me and what's my easy way out? Go up to the centurion guard and say, hey, they're a Christian, Right? And now they get called out into the court. And so being part of that Christian community was kind of a safe place. And not anyone was allowed in. And so they divided that worship service that they would have in the caves and the catacombs into two. One would be just general songs and community gathering. And the other would be the intimate ways in which they worshiped. Like gathering around the communion table where they shared the body of Christ and they gave it to one another, an identifiable mark of the Christian throughout the century millennia has been gathering around the table together. And then another one that is added. So us has always been an important part of communion. It is our communities act together. Another piece of this is enough. 
And just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to some of our Kapuna at the MYF, the Methodist Young Fossils gathering that we had. And one of the questions that came up was, whatever happened to our potlucks? And, and someone was sharing a story about what it meant to be Methodists where they grew up is that you'd come to church with a fork necklace around your neck, right? And so some of you who have been Methodists for, you know, more than just a week or, or you know, whatever, know, know that one of our hallmarks in the Methodist tradition is, has been our potlucks. So, so much so that when I was in divinity school, I got called into a clergy health initiative. Duke Endowment was paying uh, this like research about like, how do we help make the churches healthier? And I, I hate to say this, but at the time, and probably not too far off right now, is that the second most unhealthy profession in the nation was Methodist pastors, right? <laughs> like seriously, second most. And so like we went, we were like kind of like field agents. We would go do our internships and then we would take notes and stuff. And, and surprisingly, not too surprising, one of the things that came up for Methodist pastors was, guess what? The problem for them was the potlucks that they had, right? That they ate so many potlucks, it became like a health problem because, you know, down in North Carolina, people you know, often bring like, you know, the, yeah, you got the grits, you got the mac and cheese, you got the, bar, the pulled porks, you know, like all the things that are really great for your arteries, right? You know, those things, that potlucks. And so much so that one of the adages at a Methodist church is that if you have a potluck, there will always be more food than you need, right? Just always more food than you need. I did not grow up Methodist. So if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, like, what's this reference? Why are people laughing to this, like, potluck thing? I'm with you. I didn't grow up there. And in fact, like, I kind of, like, went into uh, the denomination and kind of, like, went through the ordination steps. And I started uh, my main, like, church that I was at was at this church in downtown North Carolina and Chapel Hill, or sorry, downtown Chapel Hill. It was like, it was the academic university church. So it was very different than other places. And so I had to present a, or had to prepare a sermon, which I did on a regular basis that would also get sent to the board of ordained ministries that I would have to defend. Right. And so there I was, I just kind of was like preparing my sermon and I'm prepared a sermon on this second category, enough, this principle. And my basic tenet is that I believe that the Bible teaches us an eating practice. You know, there are other faiths have like halal and, you know, like the kosher and different ways of eating. And most of us as Christians, unless you're Catholic and, you know, don't eat meat on Fridays during Lent or, you know, you give up chocolate or whatever it is, that we don't necessarily think of God teaching us about our eating practices. And so I gave a sermon on enough. And I said, as the Israelites wandered in the desert and God gave them just enough, it wasn't just about that moment, but it was a teaching practice about how we should manage food and the sustainability around it. And so I just thought that this is a simple faith thing. I mean, Jesus says in the Lord's prayer, right? Give us our what? Daily bread, right? And he tells the people as they're wandering in the desert, don't like stockpile up your food. Just have your daily manna, your daily quail. I just thought this was a basic tenant that God had put within the Bible as I, as I see how you know, we're called in the ecological crisis as it relates to the food consumption. I was like, enough just seems simple. And I literally had one of the pastors that like was at this table, like sitting around this table. And she, she was the one responsible for reading my sermon. And she goes, How'd that go over? <laughs> she had, was kind of in awe that I could get away with preaching a sermon about 
eating enough. And then I also called us to think about local sustainable ways of eating as well, as much as we're able, because just the idea was foreign for us Methodists, because we always have what? More than enough at our potlucks. That God teaches us another principle, which is to have just enough. And I think that that's one of the beauties, I think, that's written throughout the Bible, is that God wants us to live with a little less so others can have more. And today's Communion Sunday, or World Communion Sunday, and one of the things that we've done the past few years, at least since I've been here, is we gather some food, a food drive for World Communion Sunday. And the reason I I love this so much is the connection between a food drive and communion is the image of the church that would gather um, in the Byzantine era, so the Byzantine Empire, in the Constantinople area. The priests would all come outside of these giant cathedrals, like think like Hagia Sophia, like these giant ones, right? They would come outside and everyone wouldn't be allowed to come inside. But as they gathered for worship, one of the things that they would do is that everyone would bring bread to the service. Everyone would bring bread to the service and like set it up, like just like imagine on like the benches, like everyone would put the bread on the benches. And so we'd all be out there in the great lawn, just like hanging out out there. And then like I'd come in, although I'd probably be wearing fancier clothes, but I'd come in and I would just grab a bread and I'd hold it up and probably say a prayer. And then Carol would start playing the organ and we would all come in and I would come and I would take the bread and I would set it on the table. And so we all would bring this bread to here, but there's, of course, I couldn't carry all of it. But then after the worship, anything left over, where'd it go? To those that needed. Every communion Sunday was a food drive for those that needed. And it wasn't just the Byzantine church that did this. This is how God had taught God's people to do communion and to gather their food practices throughout. Koina, can you throw up the Leviticus passage? So in Leviticus which is, you know, the book of law, you know, like sometimes we gloss over. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien, for I am the Lord your God. But written into the Old Testament was that the ancient Jewish farming practices was to leave produce there so that they would not have more than enough, but so that what? All could have enough. And we we see this at work in the book of Ruth, going up through the book of Ruth, where Ruth finds herself without her husband, without children, without anyone around her. And she finds herself in this isolated social context where she's in need with her mom, Naomi. And it says, so she gleaned in the field until evening. And she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epoch of barley. Her mom and her survived off of this ancient Jewish practice enough so that others have enough. And one of the unique things, I think, that this gets into the last one is that I think Jesus is also concerned about our spiritual needs. That it's not just about give us our daily bread, but it's about feeding our souls so that we might be nourished. 
And when we come for communion, we say, you know, this is the bread of life and this will nourish us and this will feed us. And, you know, we give these like little pieces of bread, right? They're not enough to like feed us a meal. And so, of course, there's some sort of internal work that we hope happens with this food. But the thing about God's feeding us is that I do not believe that sort of internal spiritual work happens unless the first two happen. That unless we are us as a community, and unless we are thinking about all having enough, we miss out on the internal work. And that's where James talks about it, doesn't he, in the scripture that we read for this morning? Someone comes and says, I'm hungry, or someone comes naked, and you invite them to worship, you let them gather around your table, and then you send them on their way. Maybe you only let them say, I'm fine, thank you. Faith without works is dead. Being one in community and ensuring that those in community have enough, not more than enough, is part of how we are fed spiritually also. I had someone come to me recently and talked about this feeling of purpose in life, right? And one of the things that we talked about and I said I'd be praying for was, I want us, or I want you to find something that gives you meaning. And I said, and if we know anything about the Bible, that something that gives us meaning is not going to be something we get. It's going to be something we give. Well, that's helping lead in the choir, whether that's leading our outreach or serving with Sunday school, whether that's going out in the community and partnering with nonprofits and, and doing work or going down to the Hayao and doing the work that they're doing. Like, giving is how we will be fed ourselves. Because as we gather around the table, that's the rhythm, is that Jesus' way to life and to fulfillment is by what? This is my body, which is broken for you. That's our liturgy that we'll say in just a few minutes. And that the way to the kingdom of God is not by as we take it or we try to be like God, but the way to the kingdom is in this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will of reconciliation, of unity, be here on earth as it is in heaven. And give all of us, all of us here and all around us, our daily bread. And nourish us with it. It's the prayer that Jesus taught. And then when he gathers around with the disciples, he teaches them how to live. This is my body, my daily bread, which is broken for you. I invite you to pray with me. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you give us enough. Help us so as to live together that we can be in community with one another. Help us live with enough so that all can have enough. And in doing those two, feed our souls 
not for our own gain, but so that we might be your bread, your body, which is broken and given to the world. Amen.